Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Family Church in Ohioville, Pennsylvania. We pray you are challenged in your walk with the Lord through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly Family Church or to subscribe to our free podcasts, please visit us on the web at cafamily.net. I'm going to talk about understanding God's plan for man. We just got done talking about the importance of God's Word. And of course, God's Word provides for us an understanding of God's plan for man. We want to talk about that for a little bit today. I'm not saying it's going to be a 10, you know, part series or anything of that nature, but who knows? You never know, right? Now, oftentimes when you talk to people, they'll ask you questions like, what's life really all about? You know, why are we here? Is this really all that there is? What I'm experiencing in my life right here, right now, today? Is it all about this world that we're living in right now, today? Is there life after death? When a person dies, do they cease to exist? Is there any kind of dependable resource that we can look to to provide answers for these most important probing questions that people have? Well, I believe there is. But before we get into that, I want you to say one word with me. Would you mind repeating this word, faith? faith. Say it again, faith. faith. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3 and notice where this, pla- this word is placed in the scriptures. Through faith, we understand. Did you get that? Through faith, we understand. What do we understand? That the world's were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. So everything in the world that we experience, all that we see in this realm was not made of something that appears. It was made of something else. So therefore, to try to get answers to these most important probing questions by looking at things that are seen is futile. You're not going to get your answers by looking at things under a microscope, scientifically, with theories and suppositions and that sort of thing. It's just not going to happen. Why? Because it takes faith in something. You have faith in Darwin's theory of evolution? You shouldn't. It's a theory, which means there are no facts. And what about the Big Bang what? Theory. It's a theory. There are no facts. And so you're basing your faith on something that's really not factual. Every single day, we all exercise some degree or some kind of faith. You realize that? How many of you drove here today? Okay, you drove your car here? I did too. And all the way here, I didn't once ask myself, are my brakes going to work? Not at all. It was a smooth transition from my garage to here, to my parking space. But can you imagine getting in a car with someone and you're the passenger, they pick you up and you're on your way maybe to work or wherever, and all of a sudden after 100 feet down the road, he applies the brakes, almost jolts you. Another 100 feet down the road, applies the brakes again. By the third time you say, what's going on here? Well, there's a hill that we're going to be going down that's pretty steep. You know, Calcutta Smith Ferry Road is a pretty steep hill going down. I just want to make sure my brakes are working. Oh, okay, I see your point. So what's the point here? It's not unconscious fate, is that? Apparently you don't believe your brakes work. Oh, what about 
This one. You see this chair here? Let's just say the fellow weighs uh, maybe 200 pounds, right? Sits down. No problem. Another fellow walks up and says, I need a chair. Okay. I weigh 200 pounds. Okay, here's one. Are you sure that will hold me up? Are you sure? Are you positive? And he looks at it. I'm, I'm certain it'll, it'll hold your weight. Go ahead and sit down. Keeps examining it. And then... Maybe one leg at a, And then scoots over a little... It works. That's ridiculous, isn't it? The point is... Every day we exercise unconscious faith. You know why? I was at a restaurant one time. Lo and behold, it was a McDonald's. <laughs> in Cleveland, Ohio. And it was an older type one. And they had these stools. The round stool. You know what I mean? The round stool. And then the post that comes up like that. Right. So we get our little lunch. And I go to sit down. Straight to the ground. The post went straight down into the ground. And I'm flying around this. Uh, I have to tell the manager. She was, the manager says, yeah, we've been having a problem with that. <laughs> hey, 148 pounds here. Come on, what are you talking about? You should have marked it, wouldn't you think? We had unconscious faith. I just sat down, didn't think I was going to hit the ground, but I did hit the ground. One time I had the same thing happen with ketchup. Did you ever have this happen with ketchup? You go to pump the ketchup. Like you're just normal. Little, little lever. It went shooting straight out sideways and up, down my whole suit. I walked over and said the same thing to the manager. I said, yeah, we've been having a problem with that too. <laughs> Unconsciously, we exercise faith every day in little things. What about this one? This is a pretty good one. You walk into your bank. Right? And you're going to take your check. Well, the one guy walks in. Let's say I walk in and say, here's my check. I want to deposit that in my account. Okay, no problem, sir. There you go. And walks out. Another fellow walks in and says, I'd like to deposit my check in my, say, checking account. I got some bills to pay. Okay. Hands it to her or him, but doesn't let go. She goes, sir, I need the check. Oh, now, wait a minute. This is two weeks of work, you understand. You realize that? Yeah, I understand, sir. And I'll put it... Are you sure you're going to put it in the right account? Because you see, if you don't put that in the right account, I can't pay my mortgage. And states his case. Would you call that unconscious faith? I don't. That person doesn't have any faith or trust in his banking institution. I would say go somewhere else. But every single day we do little things that really are unconscious acts of faith. Driving in your car, handing over your check. Unless the bank makes some serious mistake with your checking account or your savings account, you just do it every single day. That's why they were called savings and trust companies because you trusted them with your finances, right? Hand them over and they take care of it and you expect that. We should have more faith in God than we do in our banking system wouldn't you say 
But for some reason, the one who has never lied, the one who has never, ever, ever made a mistake at all, we have a hard time trusting. Why is that? Because of this human makeup that we have, this trust that we have, based on, I'm sure, many reasons. Well, we all exercise a degree of faith and a kind of faith, but let's look at three different kinds of faith. Number one is unreasonable faith, and that's faith that is based on something in spite of the evidence. So you believe something even though the evidence says it's not true. But still people believe. Then you've got blind faith. People think that we live by blind faith. That's believing in something without any evidence whatsoever. Our faith is not blind. You realize that. But then you've got reasonable faith. Reasonable faith is believing in something based on the evidence. The evidence tells us. But the thing is, where are we going to get the evidence? Where are we going to find it? Well, God's word, the Bible, is our dependable resource that we can look to to develop an unconscious faith in a faithful God who cares about us, who demonstrated his love for us, who poured himself out for us so that we can trust him with our lives. And the only place we can go to to find dependable answers is the word of God. That's most important to know. And we're going to tell you why. It's reasonable faith. Why? Because of the evidence that's been found. I want you to notice under point one here. And this is called, there, there are different types of evidence, but this is called empirical evidence that comes by experiment and it comes by observation. Okay? But before I quote to you what Josh McDowell said, you need to understand something about Josh McDowell. How many of you know of Josh McDowell? Evidence that demands a verdict, he wrote. Then more evidence that demands a verdict. But did you know that Josh McDowell, as a young man, considered himself an agnostic? An agnostic is one who believes there may be a God. I don't know that there is a God, but you've got to persuade me if there is a God. But right now, I don't think there is a God. So, as a young person, he truly believed that Christianity was worthless. However, when challenged to intellectually examine the claims of Christianity, Josh discovered compelling and overwhelming evidence that the reliability of the Christian faith. After trusting in Jesus as his Savior and Lord, his life changed dramatically as he experienced the power of God's love. After his conversion, his plans for law school turned instead to plans to tell a doubting world about the truth of Jesus Christ. After studying at Kellogg College, he completed his college degree at Wheaton College and then attended Talbot Theological Seminary where he graduated magna cum laude with a Master of Divinity degree. So we're talking about somebody here who began searching as to whether or not Christianity was valid by setting out to disprove it. Who then found the facts and got the evidence and decided that, oh my goodness, it's overwhelming, it's true. He accepts Christ as his Savior and Lord, and now he's on a mission. He's on a mission going to colleges everywhere to let people know, young people know that are going off and having their minds changed because of what they're hearing from college professors that are atheists and that are agnostics and that sort of thing to tell them the truth about Jesus Christ. And so he delved into all the evidences that were out there to discover what the truth really was. And that's why he wrote his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and concluded that either Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or indeed the son of the Most High God, and concluded he's the son of the Most High God, based on all the evidence. 
So once again, our faith is not unreasonable. It's not blind. It's reasonable based on the evidence found. But look at this statement. These are quotes by Josh McDowell about the Old and New Testament. No other work in all literature has been so carefully and accurately copied as the Old Testament. I believe, for the New, I believe there is more evidence for the reliability of the New Testament than for any other ten pieces of classical literature put together. So in other words, he has done the research, he has found out the truth, and he discovered the fact that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, and all the accounts from the Old Testament and New Testament are absolutely true, spot on, and they cannot be denied. Secondly, there needs to be external evidence. Look at Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. External evidence. But thou Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be the ruler, be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Of course, this is talking about, this is prophetic, this is talking about that the Messiah would be born where? In Bethlehem. That's what it says in Micah. 700 years later, Bethlehem was put on the map when Mary gave birth to the Son of God in the little town of Bethlehem, which is external evidence proving that what was spoken 700 years prior to that was true. Validates it. It's evidence. And there were over 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ of this nature, where he would be born, how he would die, and the list goes on and on and on. And for any one person to fulfill all the prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ is a number one in a number you can't even begin to calculate. So, we have external evidence in Micah 5 too, but then we have internal evidence, number three. And look, this, look at this in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Now, Micah prophesied it, and what does Luke do? He verifies it. He confirms it. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into, the, into Judea, under the city of David, which is called, what's the city of David called? Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Look at verse 11. For under you is born this day in the city of David. What's the city of David? Bethlehem, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now we have internal evidence. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written by different authors, many different, 45 authors, over three continents and three different languages. Think about this. Over a 1,500 year period without any contradictions whatsoever. That doesn't just happen. Mm -mm. Micah prophesied it. Luke confirmed it. Right there in the internal work of the Bible, the Word of God, the 66 books, this was stated. It came to pass. It was confirmed. It was true. You put all this evidence together, you know what you discover? The Bible's valid evidence for the Christian faith. Without a doubt. As a matter of fact, there are two pieces of criteria that's used to test the validity of an ancient work. Two pieces. The one, closer the manuscript is to the original work, the less chance there's going to be error, and less chance there's going to be a miscopy of it. 
Then secondly, it depends on the amount of handwritten documents. The more handwritten documents, the greater the accuracy of the ancient work. So let's, for example, look in here in your notes. Plato's Tetralogies. Have you heard of that? Okay, Plato. No living scholar questions the validity of that work, yet we, all, all we have about his manuscripts are seven. Seven manuscripts, and the gap between the original and the copies, 1,200 years. Then you got Aristotle's Ode to Poetics. We go from seven manuscripts to 49 manuscripts, but the gap in between is 1,400 years. Then you got Homer's Iliad. Look at this, it bumps the number up to 1,827 manuscripts. I couldn't find the gap between the original and then the copy. But now look at the Bible. 66,420 manuscripts and scrolls. The New Testament has 24,000 manuscripts and the gap is only 35 to 40 years. What's all that stating? It's verifying the fact that God's word is absolutely true. The Christian faith has a foundation. It's not someone stepping out into blind faith just accepting something because someone else said it. It is absolutely, positively dependable evidence and proof that Jesus Christ is who he said he was and is, and that he came to do what he was sent to do by the Father, and all that he did was for the benefit of all mankind, so that mankind that was lost could be reconciled back to God the Father and have a place in his eternal kingdom. Because you know why? This life is not all that there is. And when you and I die, we don't just go back to the dust of the earth and cease to exist. And when we leave this land of the dying and go to the land of the living, we will be there for an eternity. And if we're in heaven, it'll be a blissful eternity. But if you're in hell, it will be a horrific suffering eternity that after 10,000 years, you're not one day closer to getting out. Think about that. So my point I'm making is that God's word is dependable and we can look to it as the most important resource to tell us or to prove to us that there are answers to life's most probing questions, but you can't find them in your college textbooks. There's one place to look. Right here. One place to look. Amen. God's word. And as he tried to disprove it, he couldn't. Now, with that as a foundation for our faith, let's just look at four phases of God's plan for man. And like I said, I don't know if this will be a series or not, but at least it's important we understand the different phases. Number one, God's plan for man. God desired and had a dream to have a family that he would re reproduce after his own kind. Angels weren't created in the image of God. Animals weren't created in the likeness and image of God. No other creature or being was created in the likeness or image of God. But look in the book of Genesis chapter 1, what it says about human beings. And God said, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, make men in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion. Well, back that up. Let us make man in our image 
after our likeness. What an image. What a likeness. That's hard to swallow if you think about it. Man was created by God to be in his image and likeness and crowned with glory and honor and given dominion over all the works of his hands. His position of high authority upon this earth was just that, the highest in authority. Let him have dominion over fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created him, he, him, male and female created he them. So male and female is by design, by God's design. But the point is he made man in his own image and likeness and there's no other creature in that class. Never was, never will be. But he had to place him in a garden where he would have to prove his loyalty to the God who created him. And he was told by God, you can have every tree in the garden except one. He didn't say except two. He said except how many? One. And what tree was that? The knowledge of good and evil. You can partake of any tree in the garden except the one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, because if you do, you will die. And the correct Hebrew translation is, if you do, dying, you will die. A twofold death. Dying spiritually first, you will die physically second. If you partake of it. Does that ring a bell to you? The fact that there was a tree of life in the garden that they were allowed to partake of? And they didn't, apparently? It's almost like this. God wants this family of beings exactly like him from his family to be a family that's his dream. But in order to achieve that, this man that he creates a little bit lower than himself, Psalm 8 tells us that, had to be proven that he would be loyal. So he's placed in an environment of perfection with no temptation from within until from without an enemy comes in and tries to deceive. And we know the story. But the point is, is it possible, and it could be, that had he partaken from the tree of life or had he obeyed and did exactly what God said to do, there could have been that elevation from the position of his creation to a son or a daughter of the Most High God. And God has a family. Let's rewind and go back there. You know what that would mean? No sorrow, no sighing, no crying, no dying, no sickness, no disease. No laboring at the at your brow. No pain in childbearing. You should have shouted, ladies. No pain in childbearing whatsoever. C can you see that? That was his dream. To have this beautiful place with people after his own kind who would elevate to the place of son and daughter of the Most High God. And oh my, would it not have been wonderful? No death, hmm. no tears to wipe away, no anger, no murder. Oh my goodness, wouldn't that be wonderful? How many of you know it didn't happen? Phase number one, God's dream to have a family. Number two, redemption from a sin catastrophe. Redemption, this is phase two, from a sin catastrophe. 
man rebelled against God. In the process of rebelling against God, he died first spiritually and then would die physically. We understand that's what God told him. But his condition, he is dead in his sins. He's a child of wrath like others. He is without hope and without God in the world. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 because it makes it very clear to us. This is man's condition outside of Christ. This is why God had to produce the flood. Because man was so rebellious and his heart was so wicked before God that the righteous line was in danger of being extinct. So God had to start over with Noah and his family, a righteous line to maintain righteousness in the earth. And the flood was created. What we understand is that these angelic beings that were out of control changed their habitation, their, their place, and they were able to come down and supposedly uh, produce giants with the women that were here upon the planet. And God was just so infuriated by what they had done and the wickedness of a man's heart. He had to wipe out the whole place with the flood. Man is in a depraved state. Man is in a state of spiritual death separated from God. And a wickedness is, is reigning in his heart. It is ruling and reigning over his life. And the list goes on and on. He's without God. He's without hope in the world. Look at the verse. And you at the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. See, dying you shall die. The first death is what? Spiritual. The second death is what? Physical. And the final death is the lake of fire. So you were dead in trespasses and sins. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, we were children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation or lifestyle in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Probably, I was going to stop there, and I thought, oh my goodness, that's a horrible place to stop. That's how we were, but, aren't you glad for the but? But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, praise God, didn't leave us that way. Okay? He sent Jesus to die for us. But the point I'm making is, this is the condition of a man outside of Christ. He is lost. He needs redeemed from a sin catastrophe. That's phase number two of God's original plan for man. He's unable to save himself. Look at Matthew's gospel, chapter 19. He cannot, it is impossible to save himself. I used to say when I was younger, I hope I can make it to heaven someday. I hope I'm good enough to make it to heaven someday. I've talked to people that are older and said, I think I'm going to be okay. I'm a pretty good guy. And I tell them, you can't make heaven by being a pretty good guy. You can't be good enough to make heaven. You can't do good enough works to make heaven. It's impossible for you to make heaven. Look at what Jesus said. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible but with God all things are possible so is it possible for a man to save himself absolutely not that's an impossibility you can't save yourself I can't save myself no one can save themselves it's impossible to do all right how else is he he is condemned look at John 3 we know John 3 16 but look let's look at verses 16 through 18 for God so loved the world to give his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but everlasting life for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. You know why he'd have to come to condemn the world? Because the world's already condemned. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
Salvation does not come by us. It comes by God and it comes through Christ. And so therefore, everyone and anyone who is in the world outside of Christ is condemned with the world and condemned with the devil himself. Period. That's just the way it is. Everyone is lost and going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. Next, the requirements. What's the requirement then for a man to get saved? This is part of God's plan of redemption for man. How's he going to get saved? It takes an incarnation. Of course, we've got Christmas coming up here. We'll talk about this a little bit more. The hypostatic union of deity and humanity. If a man could die for his own sins, Christ would not have had to come to the earth. But man cannot die for his own sins. He had to leave the glory world behind as the second person of deity, an entire spirit being, and he had to have a body prepared for him like ours. But the process was not just like borrowing someone's like tomb, like he borrowed Joseph or Arimathea's tomb and gave it back to him. No, this body would be his body eternally a body prepared for him to be the hypostatic union of deity and humanity fused together in one person jesus christ or christ jesus that's it forever not for 33 years forever eternally imagine that it it, it requires an incarnation can you do that Can you fuse yourself to deity? Absolutely not. Because you're not deity. But he did. We're humanity. But we're sinful humanity before Christ. Can you see that? These two come together in one. It took what? It took the hypostatic union or the incarnation. Secondly, it took a crucifixion on a cross where this second person of deity would bear the sin of the world upon his own soul. And on that cross, he became what we were, that we might become what he is. It would take an incarceration where his spirit would descend into the bowels of the earth, incarcerated until the high court of heaven decided as they looked upon the soul of the suffering servant and said, it is enough, it is enough. Release him and let him go. It took then a resurrection. Who can raise one out of such an awful state? The pangs of death, we are told. Who could bring him forth, as Acts 13 says? It says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Speaking of his resurrection. Can you imagine the magnitude of the greatness of Almighty God? We are told it was the greatest working of God's almighty power. Now, it's, it's hard for us to wrap our brains around this. If God can do this, cast out a devil. If God can uh, make a lame man walk. If God can have a man that's made whole once again. That seems like a great working of his power. But when we talk about raising him from the dead. Was the greatest working of his almighty power. Can you imagine the magnitude of the effort and power. That was necessary for Jesus to emerge. And become alive once again. Be brought back to this earth. In a glorified state. To declare that I am he that liveth. Behold, I was dead. Now I'm alive forevermore. I've got the keys of death, hell, and the grave. They're all mine. Now go ye. Go ye. Oh, you talk about redemption. It took an incarnation. It took a crucifixion. It took incarceration. It took a resurrection. And then there's more. He was ascended, seated on high. But man's need 
Man is dead. He, need, he passed from life to death in Adam. But now he needs to pass from death to life in Christ. That's the only way he can be saved. You see, that's his need. His sins need to be remitted. He needs to be declared just or, and righteous and made righteous before God. He needs to be reconciled to God and legally adopted into the family of God or born into the family of God. That's his need. I got good news for all of us. Phase one is done. Phase two is done. We are living in phase three. The father's dream has come true. Praise God. He can now legally birth sons and daughters into his family. Because of the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. Look in Colossians. Now, first of all, let's look at the Romans. Man needs to be made just and righteous before God to be reconciled. But look in Romans and uh, chapter 3, beginning at verse 23. Mostly people will look at the one verse, 23, and quote that one verse, and they stop right there. For, God's, uh, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How many of you know that's true? Okay, let's not stop there. Being justified freely by his grace to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God had set forth to be a propitiation through, the, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Oh, that's a good time to shout, praise God. Hallelujah. Yeah, we were in a fallen state. Yeah, we were separated from God. Yes, we were doomed to a lake of fire throughout eternity. But Jesus came. He took our place. He did what we had to do for ourselves. He did it for us on that cross. And now God can freely justify us and declare us to be righteous. Look at Colossians chapter 1. He could reconcile us to himself through Christ. Look at this. He also is the head of the, his body, the church. This is from the Amplified. Seeing he is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead that were spiritually dead. So that he alone in everything and in every respect might occupy the chief place, stand first and be pre preeminent. For it had pleased the Father that all... Divi the divine fullness, the sum total of the divine perfection, powers and attributes should dwell in him permanently. And God purposed that through, by the service of the intervention of him, the son, all things should be completely reconciled back to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, as through him, the father made peace by means of the blood of his cross. And although you at once at one time were estranged and alienated from him and were of hostile attitude of mind in your wicked activities, yet now has Christ the Messiah reconciled you to God in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you holy, faultless, and irreprovable in his, the Father's presence. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Whew. Did you get that? This is all God. We're just accepting it. We're believing it. Our faith is not unreasonable. It's not blind. It's reasonable because it's based on facts. It's based on the evidence. Faith. By faith we understand. And what's our faith in? The blood. 
and the finished work of Christ. Look at the next one. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 10. We were dead. We're dead. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came to his own, and his own received him not. That's the, the world didn't know him, the Jews didn't know him. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, that's, the, that's physical birth, nor of the will of the flesh, that's physical birth, nor of the will of man, that's physical birth, but of who? God. God. God gave birth to you. God brought you forth. Look at John 5, 24. God gave birth to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed, who passed from death into life. Hallelujah. Glory to God. When you believed on him, you passed from death to life. In Adam, you passed from life to death. But in Christ, you pass from death to life. You're reconciled to God. You're irreprovable, unblameable in His sight. Praise God. Washed in the precious blood of the Lamb. Look at the next one. Galatians chapter 4. Of His own will, gave, He birthed to us. He birthed us into His family. But just in case there might be some hard heads, like we Italians, you know, have some hard heads. Cabados. We say cabados, hard head. You know, stern in your way. And just, I don't know, none of you are that way, right? But when the fullness of time, the time was come. God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son... Then an heir of God through Christ. So a twofold work of God to let us know we belong to him that we're his children. Number one, he gave birth to you. Number two, he adopted you. You're adopted sons and daughters of the Most High as well. That's a twofold work of God. So you, you, you might say, well, you know, I was adopted and I feel bad. I was adopted. Well, you know what? Hey, when... When parents give birth to a child, they're stuck. That's all there is to it. It's good to be stuck with a Dante. <laughs> with short hair. <laughs> but when it comes to the adoption agency, he looks around and goes, hmm, I'll take you, 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 you. See, you're special. He picked you out. He picked you, Carly. It's good to have a daughter as perfect as you. You see the point? He gave birth to us and he adopted us. He picked us out and said, I want you for myself. Talk about God's plan of redemption. That's where we're at right now. But the fourth phase, you ready for it? We'll close with this. Look at Revelation. There's a plan. There's a family home. There's a family home. Family should be together. Wouldn't you say? A family. Look at Revelation chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven. Are you longing for it? 
and a new earth. Are you longing for it? For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Hallelujah. Oh, glory be to God. Can you say amen? What a plan. The dreams come true. We're just waiting for the new home. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Stand up together with me. Give him a shout of praise as you do. Hallelujah. Glory be to God.